Today, uh, I am talking, or we're talking to each other. Um, but for the first part, I'm talking to Amir Anzer. Uh, he is a man of many talents and does multiple different things. Um, so Amir, tell us, like, what do you do for money and what do you do not for money? Well, I'm in effect an internet entrepreneur. So what I do is I work on various ventures to help people through technology. So one of my core things is sell, selling people. So I have a team out in Pakistan where we build software for people. And I'm also an author. So I, I teach people about starting up online businesses as well. Um, one of our core ventures right now is WorkReal, which is all about connecting people looking for a job, especially we're starting off in the hospitality event niche, and which is basically people looking for a job. They have a TikTok type video where you can swipe right or left and then uh, hire people and it just makes the whole process more efficient. And essentially, I'm 46 years old. My first internet venture was when I was 22 years old in 1999. So I've just been around the digital world for quite a while. I'm really passionate about how it levels the playing field and how it helps entrepreneurs start ventures a lot cheaper than at any other point in history. Yeah, and it's interesting how you've been in the game so long, right? Because like, I feel like a lot of the entrepreneurs that I talk to, you know, are more fairly recent, you know, they've only been founders for, you know, five years or less. So tell me, like, compared with 1999 to 2023, with like such a big, you know, gap, how would you describe the differences between the technological landscape in 1999 versus today? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things I started in 99 was a reality TV show, right? And at that stage, to upload the video, it was costing something like five cents a megabit to download it. So we had to pay for video uh, streaming and downloading. And now you've got YouTube that does it for free. Everything was just so much more expensive then, right? Like to buy a server, you know, it would cost hundreds of dollars to, to buy something very basic. And now everything is just so much cheaper and so much easier to connect to. In, I started outsourcing in 2003, and that was really not well known. But now anyone can hire people in the developing world uh, because even the developing world has laptops and Wi-Fi and broadband where it didn't, you know, 20 years ago, the Internet was very much a american thing coming to the rest of the world now the rest of the world has it so it's a lot more international what's happening uh, things like you know TikTok being a, a chinese brand and dominating the world that wasn't really heard of 20 years ago 25 years ago it was only american brands that were dominating and now you have a lot more brands from around the world coming up and so i would say cost is one big thing and then the Second is awareness. Now, I don't have to preach that the internet will change the world. It's already changed the world. And, and it's just every, everyone's daily, part of everyone's daily life. Mm. Do you think there's any predictions that you've made uh, in 1999? If you remember what predictions you made during that time, were there any predictions, both positive and negative, that turned out to be either true or untrue that you made looking back? Well... I did say, I did think that it was going to change the developing world a lot faster because I could see, you know, I'm a British Pakistani. I'm a first generation immigrant to the UK. 
And an average Brit makes about $42,000 a year. An average Pakistani makes $1,500 a year. And I thought like that the world was going to flatten much sooner, right? So that, you, you know, this, this arbitrage, this change of salaries was going to flatten much faster. It's still there, right? So like a lawyer, a good lawyer in London will still charge you $500 an hour. And if you see someone in a developing country, it's less. But it's starting to change, and that will take maybe another 10, 20 years to do. Whereas, you know, obviously COVID sped up things, but still you have this, uh, I wouldn't say racism, but mapism. You know, where you are on the map still determines how much you can earn. And a lot of these technologies, like, you know, having everything on the smartphone, it it was, we knew that it was coming. I remember in 1999, there was a Palm Pilot that came out and we all got excited about it, but it took 10, 15 years till, you know, the uh, iPhone came out and, and, and came to the market. So sometimes as a technologist, you can think that things are going to happen really fast, but they take a lot longer. You know, like uh, last couple of years, there's been this hype about cryptocurrency and and nfts etc but we don't know whether it's going to be a a fad or whether it'll actually happen in 10 years time or whether it's it's just now it's a time so sometimes technology you can't tell you know you know when is the time right now there's a big hype around ai and gpt but we'll see like sometimes you you become a little bit more um I wouldn't say pessimistic, but a little bit more pessimistic because you hear about so many hypes and you, you see that sometimes things that take a bit longer than you think. Mm-mm. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where like wages across the world will be roughly the same? Or do you think there will always be a certain degree of mapism? Wow. That, I think we can, there will be certain degree, but I think we can get to that point because now Especially this is why I'm a big proponent of creating personal brands, because if someone knows you are the best graphic designer in the world, they don't care if you're based in Bangladesh. Right. But the thing is, like when you go onto platforms like Upwork, you see you're looking for a developer. You'll see a country like Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, their rates will be like 15, 20 dollars, 25 dollars. And then if you see the US, it'll be like And it's, I wouldn't say that talent is the same because they have better communication skills. But one of the big things that I teach my followers and students, et cetera, is how to improve your communication skill so that you can talk the same as an American, work on your accent, work on your way of communicating, because sometimes that's almost as important as your technical skill, whether it be programming or whatever it is. So I think that a lot of those things are disappearing. So if you look at uh, if you look at coding, for instance, a lot of developers are making thousands of dollars in in the East. But, you know, meeting face to face still has a big advantage. Right. So if you look at us, right, you're a venture capitalist. I'm an entrepreneur. We met at an event that you organized in London. We met for a dinner. And in that way, relationship was started, right? 
And so that trust a lot of people want. So in Silicon Valley, the, the software engineer will still demand $120,000 because they're based locally. And in, in a place like Pakistan or Bangladesh or India, there might be lower salaries because you don't have that trust of seeing people. So as long as governments have these passports that mean you can't travel as much, there'll be always a little bit of discrimination on, on salaries. Mm, mm, mm. So which is almost like a, a perfect almost transition to kind of like this, uh, this, this pink device that we see right in front of us, um, otherwise known as your book. Um, tell us a little bit, like what would you, if you had to give us, I think, a two-sentence synopsis on wealthology, what would that be? And what was the inspiration behind writing it? Well, as I said, I've been teaching for now the last decade on creating wealth, right? And so what was the difference between a Pakistani earning $1,500 and a few of my friends from university that become billionaires, right? And so it's all about, A, what's the difference in wealth creation? And then B, how can you create wealth faster than at any point in history? And what I'm teaching in essence there is that if you can build your confidence and self-esteem, that's going to help you create wealth faster than at any, any other point because everything else is figure outable, right? So even if I look at my own journey, there was many lost years because I was depressed, feeling bad about myself, didn't have that confidence. So I didn't try many things. But when I got my confidence back, I was able to do things like this, whether it's go on a podcast or promote my book or promote my business. So when you have that confidence, you can figure out everything else. So what I teach people is build that self-esteem and that confidence and everything else is figure outable. Like, like you said, what's the difference between 20 years ago and now? 20 years ago, there was no YouTube, there was no Facebook or LinkedIn. Now you can connect to anyone anywhere in the world. You can learn anything on Coursera or Udemy or whatever that sites might be. And you can figure out everything. So if you're looking to create a, a, a company, you can just go and do that. You know, this is so interesting that you mentioned that, right? Because I think having grown up in an East Asian culture, and even though I had lucky parents who had like, who emphasized that, I did, you know, observe a lot of like my peers who rather being, you know, taught things like, you know, self-esteem and confidence growing up was like more drilled into their head of, toe the line and, you know, make sure that, you know, you do things that, um, that are safe and, you know, guarantee you a, a path to moderate success, because that's what's going to help keep, uh, keep our family, family and to, to a degree us afloat. Um, did you see the same thing mentalities like echoed, like when you grew up or like, did you see like something like different, uh, different, um, sort of what, what's the term, different narratives preached to you growing up? I I mean, you know, I come as my father was from Pakistan, right? So his thing was always, you can't make it as an actor. You don't make it as a musician become like going. I, I mean, he didn't say what field I should go into. I liked computers, but it was a safe field, right? It, there was jobs in it. And it was always like, look, you can't make it as an athlete because very few people in developing world make it as athletes or singers or anything creative right and in the developed world there's a lot more there's we're we're in the uk i know if i really fail 
I've got the government that'll pay for my housing. I've got the government safety net. In developing countries, you don't have that. You have to have that uh, family safety net. So I fought hard to be an entrepreneur and I had to hide it from a lot of family to to do do my ventures because in the beginning they saw me when I was you know in my early 20s oh I'm gonna change the world and then things don't work out and fail and all these things and no parent wants to see their kids fail right so I had to work hard on it and I also think entrepreneurship is not for everyone it's a lot of hard slog anyone that's done it knows that there's a lot of failure financial there's stress on the family there's a lot of dark side of entrepreneurship that we don't see we see the mark zuckerberg or elon musk and they've made it big but actually majority of people fail a lot more than what you see so it wasn't quite encouraged in my family i know you have had a different background your father was an entrepreneur so he pushed you into it but for me it wasn't something that was encouraged. Now they're on board because they see the the success or the, the you know the 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 vision and where we're going. But it took a while, and it took me hiding undercover, hiding it for my wife, even <laughs> hiding it for my parents, hiding it to to say I was doing my side gig because I you, you know I in in I've been lucky to work in really respectable corporate corporations where I can make a million dollars a year, right? And that for many people is like, wow, if you can make that kind of income in a corporation, why would you risk it to be an entrepreneur? And I think for some of us, it's in our genes. You know, you have to, um, you have to express yourself and, and entrepreneurship is a, is a form of creativity. You're, you're creating something for the world. Mm-mm. And it's crazy that you mentioned that, right? Because I think that um, I remember like growing up, uh, actually I had a slightly uh, opposite experience, but growing up, I think entrepreneurship was always kind of glorified in our household. You know, um, my dad was a bit of a rebel. So, you know, he, um, he went through several stints with a few companies, got frustrated with them and decided to start his own business when he was in his early thirties. Um, so his business uh, relates to um, it's a, uh, it's basically like a like an analytics platform for um, oil companies to make better decisions. And so growing up, it was always, you know, yeah, you know, if you become an entrepreneur, you know, you can own your own assets. You don't have to listen to anybody. You can make big dreams happen. You know, there's big upside and things like that. And I think, you know, I, 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 start, I started a startup. Uh, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Um, it was an ed tech. Uh, we were matching high school students to their best fit universities. Worked on it for three and a half years. We ended up wounding it down. And then I got a chance to do some investing. And I think it's crazy because I feel like nowadays when I'm doing investing, I feel like I've gotten a more realistic view of what entrepreneurship is like in the sense. And you feel that when you get this giant line of founders trying to talk to you at demo days and you realize that I've only got enough pocket to like maybe give one or two of you some money and the rest of you are going to have to talk to someone else which is like kind of a little bit heartbreaking a little bit right but um but it's just the reality i think you know kind of like the slog and you know startup fundraising land so let's go back a step what exactly is venture capital so venture capital is basically where a group of people use 
other people's money to invest in game-changing ideas that could both impact people heavily in a positive way and subsequently return a massive amount of money via getting sold to another company or listing on the public market. So why would an entrepreneur go for venture capital? That is a good question. I think that for the majority of entrepreneurs, right, you know, a lot of cool technological ideas require external funding because to really disrupt the market, you know, you're going to have to have money to be able to hire, you know, great developers, do big sources of marketing, um, and do just a lot of things that you can't necessarily do yourself. So venture capital funding comes in to fund what essentially is that they deem to be the top 2% of entrepreneurs to provide them with those resources to be able to go take their visions, build it to a really, really big 50 billion plus grand scale. And then the hope is that they'll either build a great technology, you know, Dell could buy it, you know, Amazon could buy it, a company like that could buy it, uh, or go list on the New York Stock Exchange and make a great return for such and such um, VC fund. Now, I did write an article earlier today on LinkedIn that um, that venture that traditional venture capital actually is not the right fit for 98% of, um, of startups. Um, and I think that ties into a little bit of the project that I've been working on. Um, but to make, to, to, to summarize, you know, why a founder would take venture capital, it's generally to, to boost and increase the speed of the vision that they're trying to execute. But why do you say it's not right for 98% of people? Because the challenge is first off, like, there's a statistic that says over 90 plus percent of businesses fail. Now, it depends what we define as failure because the truth is I don't necessarily believe that 90 plus percent of businesses go to nothing. But what is defined as failure in VC land is a startup that fails to deliver the kind of requisite returns that a fund would require. Such is the case when you're swapping money for shares, which is basically how most VC funds run. And so if I'm swapping money for shares, those shares only are worth something if a company either gets sold or if a company goes public. Most of the time, a company is not able to do either particularly well. And so that what happens is actually the majority of startups, a VC or even an angel would fund, usually end up going to either zero or maybe they're lucky, maybe one. Which means that this per that this investment or the majority of investments do not return anything. Which means that in order for this asset class to be worth something, a VC has to find something that could potentially return fifty billion exit to be able to justify all the other ones that ended up going to zero or not very much. And so that's why I say it's not good for the majority of entrepreneurs because a lot of entrepreneurs are want to build something that can build, that can earn seven, eight, nine figures a year, but don't always maintain that fifty billion dollar exit. Now, earning seven, eight, fig, nine figures a year is an amazing outcome for an entrepreneur, right? If I was earning eight figures a year, what does that allow me to do? 
that gets me a four-bedroom house in Hampstead Garden suburb. That buys me a BMW 5 Series. I could have two kids and put them in private school, you know, and I'm working for myself. But that doesn't make a VC fund happy because it doesn't return his or her fund. And so that's why I, I sort of like champion models that, that allow entrepreneurs to have a more flexible way of, um, of, of getting funding and growing their business because, um, well, as the analogy says, not every chicken needs to be fed antibiotics or growth hormones. And you have worked in the U.S. and Europe, and, and I think you also touch funds from the Middle East. What do you think is the difference between these markets? It's a good question. I think that, um, to me, I think the U.S. is the most mature innovation market in the world. And the reason being, as I think, you know, several key elements, right? Because I'm an avid, I'm an avid studier of, you know, entrepreneurial ecosystems in my spare time. I think the U.S. has several key ingredients that make it a great tech ecosystem, such as um, a high risk tolerance. Um, so investors are, you know, are very, very good at investing at the very early stages. Um, great STEM talent. You know, you got institutions like Stanford, MIT, Caltech, you know, that are, just churning out all these insanely, you know, wicked smart people that, you know, that are changing the face of, you know, AI and Web3 and all those different types of things. Um, amongst, amongst many other, uh, amongst many others, right? Um, now, in the UK and Europe, I think that one of the biggest hurdles, and this is something that I'm very, very determined to, you know, help, um, to help contribute my part to be able to uh, make better is that, the risk tolerance isn't as high here amongst early stage investors. Um, sometimes there's a little bit of like subtle, invisible, but yet you can kind of see it, sense of classism and racism a little bit, which you'll notice. And so thus, I think to me, underrepresented founders in places like the UK and Europe have a, slight, have a harder time making it than uh, underrepresented founders in the, in the US. Um, so those, I think, are the, are the, uh, are the two main ingredients, right? Uh, now, the Middle East is a very interesting case, and I wouldn't call myself a particular expert on the Middle Eastern culture, but I think what I've noticed so far is there's a lot of money from the oil sector that has been like, you know, pumped out over the last several years, um, UAE and Saudi Arabia, things like that. Um, the... They're trying their best, I think, to kickstart themselves and it's incredibly commendable, just like the amount of progress they've made over the last few years. The, the early stage investing part, I think there isn't a whole lot of uh, proficiency in that area yet because I think a lot of them are still kind of going at it with the, 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 the mindset of like, okay, how much are you, make, how much are you, are you, are you earning a month you know, as a business? Whereas like, if you're investing in the early stage, you can't be asking those type of questions. You got to be asking like, okay, What's the team? You got to be trying to drill deep into, you know, the team and the moat and things like that, right? Potential over like, you know, actual metrics at the moment. And I think the Middle East probably shows a little bit on that end, but um, it is definitely very impressive as to the progress that they've been making over the last uh, several years. Yeah, I, I think Middle East is growing at a phenomenal rate. And I did get investment about a decade ago. And at that stage, it was like, can you be profitable on day one or, you know, they, they, they would basically look for a profit now. And also the investors tended to say, I'll put in 
X amount to pay your salary, but I want 50%. Whereas here in the US, you know, they're taking, they're putting in money and they're putting, they're, they're saying, give me 7% or 6% or a smaller percentage and they're letting the entrepreneur do that. But, but yeah, so th those are some of the differences. Now, what are, tell me more about your fund. What does it do? And what kind of investments are you looking at and what's, what's unique about your fund? So what we're doing at Horizon VC is, um, first off, we have a slogan and that our slogan is we are the friends and family for those that don't have access to friends and family. So what that means is we are aiming to be the substitute uh, for, you know, a lot of underrepresented founders that, for instance, don't have, um, you know, their dad or Uncle Jane or, or Aunt Jane or Uncle Bob to be able to put in um, 250,000 pounds uh, to for them to build, you know, an initial prototype or a product or, you know, hire one or two team members and things like that. Because in reality, this is how many entrepreneurs in this country and this continent are able to get a head start over their peers. So we are investing in the idea stage to precede um, currently with just 10 to 20,000 pound tickets, sector agnostic. But what makes us different is we're not using pure equity. So what we've done instead is pioneered a model called a convertible income share agreement, which is equity into a company and an income share agreement to the founder, which means that we can get um, either equity upside if a founder chooses to go a venture scalable route or stable cash flows from the income share agreement if the founder either fails the business really, really early uh, before a seed round, or if a founder takes out money, never fundraises again, and builds a solid, stable revenue generating business. So, give me an example. Let's say I'm looking for a hundred thousand. Oh, what are typical things like two hundred fifty thousand pounds to build an MVP? And uh, my, uh, you, you would take a slice of my salary as well, right? Some, something along those. So let's use an example. Let's, let's imagine a hypothetical founder, Tom. Yeah. Tom comes to us and passes out due diligence. We give Tom 20,000 pounds. This 20,000 pounds starts as an income share agreement. So if Tom is earning 2,500 or more in a given month with um, his income, that's the money taken from the business, put into his, um, into his, his salary, Tom will pay us 10% of his monthly income until Tom either pays us 30,000 in five years, one and a half X, or 40,000 in 10 years, or two X. Um, either through you know money taken from the business, or if Tom fails very, very early, money taken from Tom's uh, future full-time job. Now, if Tom um, successfully raises a round of 700,000 pounds or more in a seed round, then this 20,000 pounds given to Tom converts to equity at a 20% discount uh, to the lead investor's valuation with a 5 million pound valuation cap with follow-on optionality on Alwyn. So we believe that this unique model allows a founder to choose, or Tom in this scenario, it allows Tom to choose what kind of business he wants to build. Tom is not forced to build his company to a 50 billion pound exit. Tom can grow his business just the way that Tom wants to grow it and we'll be able to support Tom and, you know, regardless, we'll be able to get good solid returns from Tom. Wow. So what I can see is that in the world of venture capital, there's a lot of 
innovation and creativity as well, right? So that you came up with a model to support founders that is unique. You don't just say, give me X percent for X, uh, for Y dollars. You've come up with a innovative product in, in the world of capital as well. Yeah, and um, to not our credit, we did not invent this model. Um, so this model was invented in the US by an ex-family office employee uh, named Will Stringer, who runs Jesus uh, Capital. So big shout out to him if you're, if you're watching. Um, but the precursor to him was a fund called IndieVC, if you ever heard of it. Uh, and they actually just released a manifesto today that they were restarting. Um, and just a wave of, you know, alternative capital models that are not pure equity, right? What if you combine equity with, you know, things like flexible debt or flexible income revenue share, for instance, how does that produce better outcomes, both for the people that are investing in a fund, as well as, um, you know, the, the founders that are trying to grow their business? Um, because I think, I personally think creative funding options will allow entrepreneurs to build businesses with less pressure. Okay, cool. Can you just tell me a little bit about your previous jobs and what what did you used to do and what were what some of these experiences taught you? So, in my past, um, I wouldn't say I've had the flashiest pre-career before um, before getting a chance to do this investing gig, but I would say that I was a student entrepreneur, so I ran an edtech um, startup for about three and a half years. We were trying to use natural language processing to connect US high school students to their best fit universities. Um, and we ran that for three and a half years. Um, we tried to get acquired and uh, we got some soft interest, but ultimately we're not able to do so. So normally when I talk to founders, what's the best value add I can provide, I, can, I usually tell them I can tell you what not to do, but I am probably not as great in telling you what to do. Um, we had a lot of fun though running that. Um, I just remember, you know, to try to get downloads from high schoolers, for instance. We, I used to like, I used to tape giant billboards to my car and like, you know, hang out during. And then for whatever reason, uh, the high school counselors would allow me to, you know, hang out there during life, uh, during lunchtime. You know, just like sort of sometimes just drive around the block with you know a big old like tape poster and stuff like that. Just it was it was kind of fun just being able to like utilize creative marketing campaigns like that. Um, what did you learn from this experience? What, what, what could you say to people? Be as lean as possible. I think uh, there were areas I wish I saved a little bit more money. Um, focus. I think when it came to advisors, um, always, think, always think for yourself when it comes to advisors. I think one of the things that crippled our decision making a, a little bit was we took a lot of advice and a lot of the advice contradicted itself. Um, and ultimately I think, um, I think I kind of wish I did a little bit more. I took my user research a little bit more seriously. So rather than like, you know, do the classic, you know, poll people, yes or no, would you download it? Or yes or no, would you buy this feature more in a sense of like getting skin in the game type of, um, type of validation, right? Like, okay, will you pay, like pay me $10. I will go find your university matches for you and like run that experiment rather than spend money to try to build an app. I think those are the few things that I, I, I feel like I could have done better. And what do you wish that more founders knew about VCs and angels? You know, I think that, um, 
it's a challenging one. I think I wish more founders understood the entire game and ecosystem that they're playing in rather than see things through like one linear lens that they have to do things in. I think I wish more founders understood that VCs have to fundraise as well and VCs have to have obligations to the people that have invested in them. And so sometimes if we either pass on a deal or if we're or if we're not able to get back to certain founders as fast as we, we, we can, I think knowing that knowing the how uh, knowing having an awareness of like how the entire ecosystem is built out, um, as well as you know the funding options available to, available to them and things. Um as well as I think I, to be honest, I sometimes wish that they would not all reach out to the same fund. I think I, which is kind of like an onus on us to educate uh, uh, a little bit more about like, you know, each of us, you know, what we're all working on. But I kind of wish that there was a way for like the deal flow distribution to be a little bit more balanced instead of like one fund getting 6,000 decks and like the next fund getting two. <laughs> all right. And what do you, you, you're very connected in the London scene. You organize a lot of events and dinners and lunches what what is that benefit and how do you do it so well what are your tips for organizing events and getting people together um everyone has their own style of it so i think i'm not going to say that my size fits everybody um when i think of how i organize events and get-togethers i think of organizing get-togethers that introverts would enjoy and the reason why I try to imagine that in mind is because I think when I was younger, I was a massive introvert. I was pretty terrible at talking to people. Like I was the kind of guy that, you know, didn't know how to make new friends and um, struggled, I think, you know, how to connect to people and stuff like that. And I think as I got older, you know, as I really, you know, tried to learn and understand, you know, how people related to each other more in my teens and stuff like that, I realized that um, I still remember what it felt like to be an introvert, to be honest. And I think that during the early stages of, uh, of, you know, when I would network, I realized that too many events catered towards those that were extroverted, leaving those that were introverted to like kind of just like struggle on their own and like figure out how to like meander their way about and stuff like that. And so that's one principle that I try to use when I bring people together. And that's kind of what brought me to the concept of, you know, for instance, investor dinners. I think that food brings people together very, very well, uh, better than drinks can. And so I think that's why I opted to use a dinner format a little bit more than um, than a drinks format. So I think anybody that's running events, I'd highly consider them to consider, you know, bringing in some element of food because I think that food by nature just creates, there's a subtle energy element about having food on a table that creates better conversations and more in-depth conversations as well. Um, once you do that, I think that um, the next big thing is, I think, uh, just knowing what kind of energy people put into the room, because I think one of the biggest things I've learned is people, any given person in any kind of group either puts three types of, uh, three levels of energy. They either add to the room dynamic, they are, they are neutral to the room dynamic, meaning that they don't add or take away to the room dynamic, or they take away from the room dynamic. And I think I just highly encourage anybody, whether or not they're running an event or even participating in like gathering, you know, an event or anything like that. to always remember, are you adding to the group dynamic or are you taking away? And I think everyone should always try to strive in their own unique way and um, in their own unique, you know, way that God created them is like how to the best of my ability, how can I add to the dynamic I'm in? What do you mean by add and what do you mean by take away? So, like, give me some examples. 
I can add to a room dynamic when I'm either listening well, going well with the humor, um, providing some good um, good opinions that add to the current topic of conversation, steering the conversation in a great direction, or just offering to help people around me, you know, like adding that element of care around to the people around me or making people laugh. Um, I take away from the room dynamic when I snap, when, um, when I'm giving fairly dry responses, um, when I'm probably not as engaged as I need to be, or when I'm, when I say things that, you know, are inadvertently maybe offensive a little bit, not to say that everyone's going to be perfect in the conversation, but, uh, but sometimes you can tell like when there's that guy or that gal that's like kind of like dumping the energy and making it a little bit off. Um, so I go, I do, I do go by feel a lot to be quite honest. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the challenges I always have in these rooms is when are you being too salesy, you know, like, because we, a lot of us go to these rooms, we're looking for business. We have our own vision and mission. And then it's like, okay, you have to work within the room to provide value, but also let people know what you're looking for as well without being too pushy and too salesy. You, you know, that, that's, that's a fine art that you have to learn over time as well, I guess. It is a fine art. Uh, and I think going over time, I think I've learned, I, I've, I've, I've started to become aware that everyone needs to survive in the industry and for people to survive, they kind of have to talk about themselves. At the same time, something juxtaposing to that that is equally as true is people want to be appreciated for who they are as people rather than for what they can provide. Mm -hmm. So that's why like a lot of things such as, you know, transactional relationships or takers are not very valued in, you know, our industry because transactional relationships means I only care about what you can provide and who you are as a person doesn't mean squat to me. Uh, and takers, that means like I'm only asking you and I'm not really uh, trying to figure out how I can help you as well. And so I think mastering those three sort of like different dialectics is, yeah, it's, it's a big challenge and it's, it's something I'm still trying to get better at. But I think one of the ways I've tried to navigate my way around it is just make good industry friends, find ways, find people that I really, really connect with whose work and values I respect and just find ways to, you know, to like, you know, both help them and, you know, spend time, some, spend some quality time with them regularly. And what do you think about London as a city uh, for investing, connecting, et cetera? Um, you were in Seattle, like I'll, I'll tell you the story because you, you were saying last time we met that, you know, in Seattle, you had to drive and there was only certain parking spots and London has good communication, uh, like uh, good public transport. So it's easy to get people to meet up. Would you agree with that? It is very true. And, um, I think an underrated role that plays into a city's ability to be a world-class tech ecosystem is its connectivity and its ability to, you know, uh, bring people together via means of public transport and, um, and shared communal spaces. Um, Seattle has a lot of great talent. You know, I do give them credit, you know, uh, UW, um, Computer Science School has produced some amazing talent, you know, the folks that, you know, Amazon and, uh, a lot of big tech companies over there, the software engineers are doing great work, but it was, it was a challenge. I think like there's, it's decent public transport for the U S there's buses and like a tram and stuff like that, but you can't really beat the London underground for like sheer use and con conveniency for, you know, just like getting, 
getting people around anywhere, right? Like, I think one of the coolest parts of the city is like, you know, I can just ring people up like, okay, guys, we're meeting at this bar. It's at Holborn Station. Secure table of 20, done. People show up. Um, it's not as easy to do that in Seattle because everything's connected to a bus line. Buses are constantly delayed, which, you know, adds every tiny level of micro inconvenience uh, lessens the chance of a person, you know, going to an event versus saying, I'm just going to go home. And so, um, and so why this, this city doesn't a really amazing job at that. Um, now we can talk about, you know, the various, you know, different policies that came out over the last few months and maybe we're not as satisfied by it. Um, and no city or country is perfect, but I do highly vouch for the city, um, as a great start because system, I'll continue to do so and I'll, con- I'll continue to, to bat for the city as long as I can. Awesome. Uh, John, uh, tell us how people can connect to you. How, how can they find you online? How could they even pitch to you if they wanted to? You know, just shoot me a DM on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Jonathan Sun, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N space S-U-N uh, or Twitter at uh, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N capital Y S-U-N one. Um, so yeah, that's uh, where you can reach me. But uh, Amir, tell, tell us where we can reach you and where we can buy a copy of Wealthology. AmirAnzur.com, A-M-I-R-A-N-Z-U-R.com. You can download a free copy from my website or you can find it on Amazon as well. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. And we'll catch up next time. Appreciate it, Amir. That was a blast. Cheers.